And all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. For the body, the body does not, not consist of one member, but of many. As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. If one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Amen. Morning, church. Today's reading is going to be from um, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 11. Um, just please uh, read aloud as I read. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to multi how you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there were varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, for to one is given the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, the faith by the same Spirit. To another, the gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each individual as he wills. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Ruben. Morning, Transit Church. Awesome. Let's pray, and then we get going in God's Word today. Father, we're grateful. Thank you for uh, beautiful summer weather in the fall. We thank you for the gathering of your church and for the grace that you extend to us as your people. Uh, Lord, we open your Word uh, expectant that you're going to speak to us as you do every time we read uh, of your, your infallible, authoritative word to us. And so uh, do that for us today. Uh, incline our hearts to you. And uh, Jesus, we worship you and, and honor you as we, uh, as we worship today. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. So if you're joining us, we are continuing in a series in the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. We've been in it since right before the summer. Um, chapter 12 today, which means we have four chapters left, but it's going to take us another couple months to really get get through those. And we are in the part of um, Paul's letter where he, where he is challenging the Corinthians on their spiritual pride. Spiritual pride. The Corinthian culture was one that greatly valued both knowledge and wisdom. They also valued uh, or desired, rather, spiritual experiences. And that was in the secular culture. And of course, just like us today, whatever's in the culture can influence us to do those same things. And so Paul had actually addressed this idea of spiritual pride earlier. In chapter one, he says, for the Jews demand signs. Science is another way of saying the Jews were looking for uh, experiences, uh, ways that they could tell that God was actually being God in the world. So Jews demand signs, and he says Greeks seek wisdom. In other words, Greeks were looking for um, a higher knowledge that would 
uh, alert them that there was a God, a higher power in the world. And really, in, in all of this, this was just a self-imposed sense of higher religion that was the source of the Corinthians' spiritual pride. But here's, here's Paul's stance with that. It was dividing the church and was causing people to, 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 to get their eyes off Jesus. And so in this part of the letter, Paul is going to confront this idea that to have certain gifts or, uh, or certain spiritual experiences makes you any more spiritual or any more mature than other people. He's going to confront the pride of, of boasting in a gift that God gives you, and yet with that gift, the Corinthians were uh, leading themselves and others astray from Jesus. And there's a warning in here, obviously, for us. You know, there's, there's a lot of ways that we divide ourselves as Christians. We divide ourselves into denominations or non-denominations. You got Baptists and Methodists and Lutherans and Episcopalians and Presbyterians. And I'm, I mean, that's just a few. And there's der derivations of all of those. And you got the non-denominational sect of which we are a part that there's like several versions of that. We divide ourselves that way. We divide ourselves into types of liturgy, uh, to the contemplative types of liturgy, or you might have uh, an exuberant type of worship and somewhere in between those. Uh, we divide ourselves ethnically. In fact, some would say that uh, in Christianity, the most divided point of our existence is on Sunday morning where we divide ourselves into different types of churches. But we also divide ourselves into camps of word and spirit. Word and spirit. Some of you are word people. That means you tend toward knowledge, like you like the Bible, you don't want anything else. Some of you would tend toward the spirit, and you're more about the experience of worshiping God. Word people. Those are the people that say, you know, Jeff, I don't even need the singing. You can just take the worship team right off the stage. Just give me the word. Like, like why are we taking so long to get to the sermon? These are the type of people that, that they're going to three Bible studies. They got BSF going on. They got PWOC going on, and they go to community group. These are people that read the commentaries for fun. They're reading the commentaries, and they're homeschooling their kids, and they're also teaching their kids Greek, and their kids are only five years old. These are the people. These are the people. Um, you guys know I'm embellishing this, right? So I'm not trying to, like, step on your toes. I'm, I'm describing people who are like, like, kind of like me, right? I'm a knowledge person. They want to and try to know it all. I'm, 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 this, I'm in this camp, like, all the way in. But here's the warning for those of us who are on the knowledge side of the, uh, you know, of the faith. It can be so easy for us to get so puffed up with what we know that we think that makes us mature or spiritually elite, and that's not the sign of maturity. What you know is never a sign that you are mature in the faith. Maturity isn't your knowledge, it's in your heart, it's in your love for people. We're going to hear Paul say that in chapter 13, that love is the greatest gift that God gives to any of us. That's where maturity shows up. And so a lot of times we know a lot, but we love very little. Paul will say earlier, you know, there are some that have great knowledge, but also lack any dynamic power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And of course, that's the other extreme. So we got the word people, but some of you are spirit people. And I, I'm like in this camp too. And the spirit people, they're all about the experience. They want worship to last not just 15 minutes. They want, can, can we like not worship like for 30 minutes? 
like just like basking in the glory of God. Let's, let's like, let's sing until the glory cloud comes over. I want to feel goosebumps on my arms. I want my hair to stand up. We want to talk about the power of God, the, the Holy Spirit coming in and gifting us and how the Holy Spirit comes and works in and through us. And those are your experiential or your spirit people. And of course, there's a warning there for them too, that we can, we can value the experience so much that we divorce ourselves from what the Bible says. I know, I mean, these are, I have friends of mine who are in this camp. Like, I'm in this camp. I'm like straddled like this. All right, I, I can't do that because Nick will pick on me and say I'm doing a split on the stage. I know people who, uh, who are in the, the, the experiential camp and oftentimes they tend to love the gift more than the giver. That's how I would say it. And of course the warning is when you value experience without knowledge, then you become spiritually empowered, but biblically illiterate. And this is just as bad. So is there a middle ground? I, I think there is. And we want to be people, we want to be a church that sort of straddles that middle ground. We want to be people of the book. In other words, we want to be people of the word that our faith is informed by what the Bible says, not just by our experience. But we also want to leave room for the mystery of God and for simply what God says in his word about the experience of being Christians in his world, which means the Holy Spirit does operate in ways that we can never explain. We want to be people of the word. We want to be people of the spirit. And, and I think that's a beautiful vision of a church. And so Paul will say, firstly, that we're all being led. Look at verse 1 and 2. Now concerning spiritual gifts. Okay, so we've seen these words before. Every time Paul says now concerning, he is actually responding to a letter that the Corinthian church has written to him. And in this case, they are writing to him about spiritual things. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. However, you were led. The word spiritual gifts can actually be translated spiritual persons or spiritual things there. So the Corinthians probably wanted, all right, so Paul, tell us about what it means to be spiritual, what it means to be spiritual people or to, to handle spiritual things. And that's opposed to how Paul's going to use this idea of spiritual gifts in verse 4. In verse 4, he's going to use the word charisma, which you guys are familiar with. And so Paul tells the Corinthians that when they were in, in, in the pagan world as unbelievers before they knew Jesus, they were being led. Particularly, they were being led astray. So Paul is saying, whether Christian or not, there are spiritual realities that are leading them. And that, that applies to us, too. We have to recognize that as we live in the world that we're living in, every single moment of our lives, we're being led by something or someone. There's a spiritual reality to our world. There are spiritual forces and powers that operate all around us and influence us every day. In fact, it would probably be, uh, it's not wrong for me to say that each one of us is a walking worship center. So we don't worship when we just come into a place like this and we're a collective body of people lifting our hands and worshiping Jesus. We're always worshiping. We're looking at things and those things or those people are influencing us in the way that we live and go about our lives. And so Paul starts with this premise, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be 
uninformed about spiritual things, he says. If you want to know about being spiritual people, there's spiritual realities going on, and it's easy to be misled, even in the use of gifts that God gives you for the advancement of the kingdom of God and the good of his people. And the remedy for that, Paul says, is Jesus is Lord. Look at verse 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And so Paul sets this baseline for our experiential lives. So whether you tend towards the Word side or the, the Spirit side, whether you're a knowledge person or an experiential person, Paul says, here's, here's the, 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 the place where you need to land. It's Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord is a way of saying, all right, Lord, my hands are open, my heart is outstretched, and I'm going to submit all of that that I am, all of my life to the Lordship of Jesus. I'm going to give all that I am to the authority of Jesus, the power of Jesus, to the will of Jesus. What he wants for my life, I also want, to include in my spiritual life. Actually, all of you is a spiritual life. So we sing and talk and pray a lot about Jesus in, in our church. We do that overtly. We, we think that Jesus matters. When it talks about God in the Bible, the, the God is talking about, his name is Jesus. We just sang that song. But here's a phrase here that's going to be hard for us to, to sense the weight of the words because we don't live in their context. When Paul says, Jesus is Lord, um, that carries far more weight than we put on it as Christians because in the, in the first century Roman Greco world, Caesar was Lord. Caesar was the, the biggest, baddest, you know what, on, on the planet at that time, in the, in the first couple centuries when Jesus, when Jesus and these disciples were living. He owned everything. He got what he wanted. You would have existed if you lived during that day to accomplish what Caesar wanted to get accomplished. You would have been, uh, you would have lived for his glory and for his fame. In a sense, Caesar was the God of their day. So as a new Christian, what you were being what you were being invited to do was to change allegiances. Caesar is no longer Lord. Jesus is Lord. Can you imagine what that meant for you as a Christian? Because in the, in the Roman government, if you did not profess that Caesar was Lord, guess what it meant? It meant that you were a traitor to the government. And this, uh, this would have ostracized you. It would have pointed you out as a rebel you would have been marked as one who was not complying with the laws of the land, and this would have likely cost you your life. In fact, the first three centuries, um, uh, th this is the reason for the martyrdom of the, 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 the mass martyrdoms of, of those prominent Christians that we see that were willing to say Jesus is Lord versus Caesar and would give up their life for that. You know, it's easy to say where we live that, I mean, we don't have that kind of thing in the 21st century. I mean, this, is there really that kind of pressure to say or not say Jesus is Lord? But the reality is, you know, every one of us in our hearts by our actions are saying or doing something and, and, and making that, that something or someone Lord. We all give ourselves over to whatever or whomever we believe is the most important for life and for happiness. And I don't, I mean, I don't have exact, I don't have, I don't know what that might be for you, but I do have some examples from my own life. Comfort is Lord for me. Like I want my house to be not too cold, not too cold, not too hot, almost like Goldilocks, right? I, want, I don't want my bed to be not too hard. Not, actually, I want my bed to be real hard because I'm old. I got back problems from the army. Um, 
I don't mind doing yard work, but Lord God, if anything breaks in my house, it almost breaks me down because of the energy that it takes to, to get it working back. Our, our dryer is broke right now. Oh my gosh, have you ever been without a washer and dryer? It like throws your whole rhythm off. Like who, thank God for Pete. Yes, yes, yes. Sometimes security is our Lord. Your job might be Lord. Upward mobility might be Lord. The opportunity to gain more, gain more what? Anything. Notoriety, status, house, car, money. Your kids and their successes in school or sports might be Lord for you. So my wife and I had an opportunity to say in our own hearts that Jesus is Lord over our middle son, David, this past week. We, dropped, we flew to California on Tuesday, dropped him off on Wednesday at Stanford, and uh, it was a great trip. We had been working up for this, I mean, for almost a year, knowing that he was, you know, very likely to choose a school, a great school that was a long way away, and it even, I mean, just the trip itself reinforced how far away our second son is from us, and we trust our son David because he's an amazing kid, just in like, in every way. But the, the, the tendency is to, you know, to not trust God for your kid. And so, and so if you're a parent in the room, I mean, there, there are these occasions where you have to remind yourself, all right, Jesus, you're actually Lord over my son, and you love him more than we even do. And so we, we give him to you, Lord. Here he is. Help him to do well. We trust you, kind of, sort of. Right? So here's the thing. If we're not careful our desires to control our kids, but just everything, their futures. I mean, it can, be form, it can become a form of worship. And, and we'll think that we need to exercise authority over our kids or over our stuff so that it doesn't run awry or our kids don't ruin their lives. And that was kind of our tendency. It's like, man, he's going a long way away. We're not going to be able to go see him and check in on him and call him, you know, all those kinds of things. And if we're not careful, not just with our kids, but with our lives, that fear of what will happen will become a controlling power. And what happens? We make ourselves Lord instead of Jesus is Lord. Here's the reality. Whatever you make Lord over your life never delivers what you hope, and it always leads to enslavement and destruction, unlike Jesus, who sets us free. I think this is a good exercise. It's been a good exercise for Larissa and I, and it's Hopefully, uh, will be a good exercise for you if you're one that gets trapped into trying to control things. Sometimes ask yourself, per perhaps even weekly, Lord, who is Lord over me right now? Who has been Lord this past week? This past week, where did I submit myself to, to other lords, other authorities, and other powers? And of course, here's the beauty of the gospel, that we can confess those things to Jesus. We can repent of those. He purifies us and cleanses us of our unrighteousness. More than that, what does he do? He, when we turn from those things that we're worshiping to Jesus, he forgives us in all the ways we've rejected him, and he frees us from those things which potentially have enslaved us. So this is where Paul starts. If the Corinthians don't get this first, that Jesus is Lord, then they will think that their knowledge or their spiritual ability or their experiences or their spiritual gifts, the, the very gifts that God has given them, will be the ultimate thing. And as a result, they'll use the very gift that God has given to walk away from the Lord who gave it to them. And, and Paul does not want them to do that. And so they have to keep Jesus as Lord in their lives 
as they now consider what to do as with what they've received. And that's where Paul goes next. Everything that we have has been given. So in this whole idea of spiritual gifts, here's where, the, here's where Paul lands, and of course where Paul lands is where the Bible lands, where God lands. Spiritual gifts by nature are, are their gifts. They're given. They aren't something that you can attain by hard work. They aren't something that you always can practice and somehow get better at it because you practice really well. Spiritual gifts are gifts. That's the very nature of what they're called. Now, here's a caveat. I'm going to say in a couple weeks that if you discern that you have a gift, how do you exercise that gift better? Well, you pray and ask God to help you. You get around people who have that gift. And in faith, the more that you, um, the more that you use the gift, God gives you confidence to use the gift, and you're, you're going to become uh, more better, more accurate uh, as you use it. Verse 4, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. So the word uh, gift here, as opposed to verse 1, is the word charisma. You've heard that word. Actually, this is a derivation of charisma. This is charismaton. It means grace. So Paul is literally saying there are a variety of spiritual graces. In other words, spiritual gifts are a grace thing. Grace is God giving you what you don't deserve. You don't earn it. You don't get it because you did anything right or because you were good. Verse 5, and there are a variety of service but the same Lord. Varieties of service can be translated as ministry. Uh, this word service is the word diakonos. It's, the word, it's where we get the word deacon. What's a deacon? A deacon is someone who has a unique calling to serve as a gift to the church, a gift to others. We, our department leaders are gifts, in our, uh, are gifts to us in our church because they serve us, and they serve us as a gift that God has given them. It's an outworking of their gift. And so Paul says there's a variety of service, but it's the same Lord as in if Jesus is your Lord, he's the one that gets to direct how you use that gift. Verse 6, and there are a variety of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. Once again, the word activities can be translated as energies. That's, an, that's not a word that I would necessarily put in the Bible, but the Holy Spirit saw fit you know, to, help, to, to have Paul use that word. But here's what he's saying. God is the one who takes the gifted realities that we have. In other words, God gives us a gift, and then he places, in a, places us in a context, in a ministry context, where we can use that gift. And then he empowers you with spiritual energy to do something that you couldn't have done without God's presence in your life. That makes sense? God gives you a gift. He places you in a ministry context. And then he gives you the, the he empowers you with his ability, not your own, to do the very thing that he's calling you to do. And it, it, it lands us here in verse, verse 7 before we get into the, the actual gifts. Verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. There's two important things here. Firstly, Paul says, to each, his, to each is given, which means this applies to all of us. Okay, don't, don't be afraid by that. But Paul is saying every Christian has been gifted by the Spirit to do ministry empowered by God himself. Here's the second important thing. It's for the common good. As you exercise a spiritual gift, the point is you don't have that particular gift just for you and yourself. God has given it to you 
that, that the body might be edified. He, he gives it to you for others, that you would be outward thinking in the gifts that you've been given. In, in fact, I think we, we should all think like this. Lord, how can I exercise the gifts I've been given for the, the advancement of God's kingdom and the good of the church everywhere it exists? That's, that's, the, that's the, the, the impetus behind our spiritual gifts. Here's what I would add, and this is going to come out over the next several weeks as we're talking about spiritual gifts. Paul wants us all to understand there is no spiritual maturity connected to the kinds of gifts that you have. Did you notice that he didn't say, hey, after you've been in the the faith for three or four years, then um, the Holy Spirit's going to allow you to do this, or you're going to be able to do that. There are no qualifiers in regards to how long you've been in the faith, how much you know, or if you've been in a certain stream of church that you get to exercise these gifts. He doesn't want us to think that because, you, that because certain people have certain kinds of gifts that makes them more mature. And here's the unfortunate thing. In, in the church, we've elevated certain people who have certain gifts, and we've either labeled them as more spiritually mature or as more important than the rest of the body of Christ, as if the gift that they have, um, they, they like shook themselves and gave it to themselves. No, Paul says these are gifts that come from God. It's a gift, and it's his grace, not just to the person that's exercising. It's a gift to the whole church. And so Paul says gifts are given. They're not acquired. Gifts aren't an entitlement. Spiritual gifts aren't earned. And so over the next several weeks, you'll hear us unpacking several things about spiritual gifts. Here in chapter 12, here's what we're learning. We're learning there's three types of gifts, and we can find them in Scripture. First, they're people gifts. Have you ever thought that, that people would be a gift? That, that, that you, sitting in here, you're actually a gift of God, not just to yourself, although you're supposed to love yourself. It's all right to love yourself, right? You're a gift to, to the body. In fact, I pulled um, Sean and Katie over during a, during a meet and greet, and I said, so here's, the, here's your gift. You, not just you as a married couple, your family is a gift to the people that you're around everywhere you go. And I can't explain it other than just saying that. I think that like, like from, the, from you to all the littlest kid, you bless people wherever you go. And that wasn't a word from God. It probably was. It, it probably was. I'm going to talk about it in a second. But I think it's true of them. It's, it's a gift. It's a weird kind of a gift, but they're just a blessing. So there's people gifts. There's, these are people given to the church as gifts, like, like Ephesians 4.11, apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. I'm not going to show this on the screen. Scroll down to verses 28 and 29 in your, in your app or in your Bible. And God is appointing in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, help. And then look what he says helping, administrating, and various kinds of, of tongues. All right, people exercising these kinds of gifts, these are, all right, there's a person behind those gifts. It's not just some gift like standing astray by itself. It's like doing whatever it does. They, these gifts are operating in people, and those people come to us as gifts. In Ephesians uh, 4, 7 through 11, Paul says something very interesting. It actually can be confusing how it's worded, but here's, here's the gist of what he's saying. He says, Jesus sets captives free, and then he leads them to the church, gives these captives to the church. Actually, they're ex-captives. He gives them to the church so that they can equip the church. Here's what I think Paul is saying about people gifts. He's saying that God gives some people 
He, he actually, God gives all of us, he releases us from bondage, uh, the bondage of Satan, sin, and death, and, he, and Jesus sets us free, and then we're given as a gift to the church of which Jesus is a steward. And so that kind of applies to us all. And so in a sense, all of us, as we're expressing any kind of gift that God has given us, you're a gift to the church. That Jesus has set you free, and you're here on purpose as you're using your gift for the advancement of God's kingdom and for the good of the uh, the good of his church. So there's people gifts, there's also skill gifts, and then we saw it just now in uh, verses 28 and 29. It's like helps and administration and leadership and teaching and mercy and giving. If you're taking notes, write down Romans 12, verses 6 through 8. That's another list of gifts. And then 1 Peter 4.10 would be another set of gifts. And the idea here is that God not only has given you as a gift, but he's given you a skill that by his spirit, he empowers you so that your skill has supernatural abilities as you're exercising it. And the Bible would suggest that all of us in here receive some kind of a skill gift for which we can edify God's body, Jesus' body, the church. And then there's manifestation gifts. And so the manifestation gifts are the ones that we're dealing with in the verses of Scripture that we're talking about today, beginning in verse 8 and going all the way down to, to verse 11. Manifestation gifts, these are given spontaneously for the present need. They are occasional and they are circumstantial. Here's what Sam Storms says. Sam Storms is an Acts 29 pastor. He's got a, he's got a great story. He's a, he's a Presbyterian. He was a cessationist. He didn't even believe his spirit operated in, like, like in miracles and uh, the manifestation gifts that we're going to talk about. And guess what God did? God arrested him. Not, not like locked him up and put him in jail. He, he, he put him in an environment where he received some spiritual gifts. And that, that had to have rocked his world. If you're a person that doesn't believe the Spirit operates in miracles and prophecy and stuff like that, and God like gives you that gift, what the world do you do with that? Well, Sam Storms is... A, I mean, he's written lots of great, clear um, things in regards to this. But he's, he's a word guy that God made a spirit guy. He says it's about God. Uh, this is really uh, regarding manifestation gifts. It's about God at his time and according to his purpose, imparting, uh, at, imparting a gift of enablement to a particular person at a particular occasion to accomplish a particular purpose. That's in his book, uh, Beginner's Guide to Spiritual Gifts, if you're interested in learning more about this. And so we're going to look at the manifestation gifts. All right, that's what we're going to do for the rest of our time here today. Manifestation gifts can be given to any Christian at any time in accordance with God's purposes. But here's the thing to, to keep in mind. They are, they are they're given to us to declare and display Jesus is Lord for the common good. That's what spiritual gifts are given for, so that we can declare with our lives and how we use them, Jesus is Lord, and be used for the common good. Verse 8. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. All right, so right, right up, he gives us two um, manifestation gifts, the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge. So when the scriptures say utterance, it's, that's, the same, that's the word word, okay? So the word word. So when someone says to you, hey, I got a word, they're saying, I, got, I, I was spiritually enabled, I was enabled by the Spirit to know something that I don't know, 
or to say something by which it's not necessarily coming from me. So a word of wisdom can be a spirit-led or spirit-given utterance or a word that brings some fresh insight to a situation. It could be a, a, applying God's word to a situation. Example, if you read the Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 3, Solomon has just been anointed the king, uh, taken over for his, his father David. He's been given supernatural wisdom just to know a, a, lot, a lot about a lot of things. And two ladies come to him. Prior to coming to him, these ladies had just had babies in the middle of the night. One rolls over their, her baby and, and suffocates him, and he dies. And so she t- clandestinely takes another lady's baby and makes him her own. So the two ladies in contention go to Solomon, who's the wisest man on the planet at that day, and they say, hey, we got, a, we got an issue. I think that's my baby. And the lady, of course, who is wrongly carrying this baby says, no, it's my baby. And Solomon, in wisdom, says, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to cut the baby in half, which sounds kind of morbid, right? But he was, he was operating in supernatural wisdom. He was operating in a word of wisdom because he knew the true mom was going to come out at that moment. And so, of course, the, the fake mom says, yeah, if I can't have him, let's just cut him and let's just end his life. And the true mom said, stop, I don't want to do that. You can keep the baby. There surfaces the real mom. So that's just one case of uh, the, an experience of the word of wisdom. Some of you experience this happening. This is when you're talking to someone and you may be talking about spiritual things. Maybe you're talking about something in your life or their life and the, and the Holy Spirit just drops something in, in you that you know, all right, so now, two seconds ago, I didn't have what I'm getting ready to say, but now I have it. And you just give them either some input into whatever is going on or maybe you know it's from God and say, hey, um, can I just encourage you with something that I think God has for you? This could be you praying for someone and, um, and you just knowing, all right, so I now have a thought that I'm supposed to pray in this way about this situation for this person, and that would be a word of wisdom. Um, a very simple example is, is when Nick and I are preaching. I'm not saying that neither of us operate in the word of wisdom um, often or regularly, but it does happen. So I manuscript my sermons. Nick doesn't. He just writes outline. But I, I mean, I think about what I'm going to say. I write it down, and I pretty much stick to, stick to my script. Every once in a while, I'll know the Lord. Ha- I mean, I don't even want to say it like that. Every once in a while, I know that I'm supposed to say something different or say something a little differently than I had planned, and I know it won't come from me. How do I know it's not from me? Because it sounds and it comes off so much better than what I have in my own ability. Amen. And that's the Lord blessing you. I mean, I get to, I, I, I don't, and I don't, of course, there's no reason for me to just like, all right, the Lord just gave me a word of wisdom. Like, I don't do that. But I mean, almost every Sunday, not every Sunday, often, often, like, there are things that come in my mind, and I know they're not me, because I'm not that quick. Right? Y'all, y'all know I'm your pastor. It's okay. I know, who, I know who I am. My wife's sitting right there. She's like, yes, yes, yes. All right. It's the Lord, like, hovering over us, and he's blessing you by what he sometimes gives me for you. That's a word of wisdom. A word of knowledge is likewise a spirit-led or spirit-given utterance or word that communicates a unique understanding into the realities of God or into the world and relationships. Charles Haddon Spurgeon is by far one of the greatest preachers to ever live. 
He didn't, he didn't talk about operating in spiritual gifts, but the, in his biography, there are several biographies, biographies on him. In one particular biography, um, it's writing about um, him preaching one Sunday in Exeter Hall in London, and he broke right in the middle of a sermon, and there's this guy in the, I don't want to point anybody because you're going to think I'm doing it to you. Um, he points at this young man. He says, young man, the gloves that you have are not your gloves. You stole those from your employer. And then he went, he went back to preaching his sermon. Like, can you imagine that happening at the transit where Nick or I just stops and like, Stephen. <laughs> she was like, bring it on. Bring it on. I can handle it. Here's the thing. Charles Hatton Spurgeon could not have, well, let me tell you the rest of the story. All right, so after the, after the service, Charles, I mean, the, the, the young man was so shaken by that event that he went up to, to Spurgeon and says, so um, this is the first time I've ever done anything like this, and uh, I'll, make right, I'll make my wrong right. Please don't tell my mother because she would not be pleased to know that I've turned into a thief. And that was the end of the story. Um, Charles, Hatton, Charles, Charles Hatton Spurgeon did, I mean, Sermon prep and reading the Bible could not have informed him that that man was going to be there and those things about that man that morning. The Lord gave him that so that man would be moved to know that God is recognizing him, that he sees him, and he wants him to confess his sin and repent. Sometimes the Lord will do that. Have you ever been in worship and it feels like the preacher is speaking directly to you? Like, I mean, that happens all the time with, with me, not when I'm preaching, like when other people are preaching. Uh, I, I am amazed sometimes when you all come up to me um, after a service and, you, and you'll say, all right, so, Pastor, I mean, that was a great sermon. And I especially liked it when you said this. And typically when that happens, it's on one of those mornings that I need to be encouraged because I thought I've preached the worst sermon that I've ever preached. And, and, and then a the person says, well, when you said this, and I'll be like, oh, and I don't say this out loud, but I was like, all right, so I didn't say that. Holy Spirit, you did it again. Because what happens is God, the Holy Spirit, will take something that I'm saying out of my mouth, and one of two things have happened. Either uh, somehow, by the Spirit, as, it, as, as my words are going through the air, they're, they're coming to you, and they're landing in your ears, and the Spirit is translating it in a way that you understand it, but more importantly, in a way that you need it for the moment. Um, or just like, it's the Spirit operating like He's supposed to, right? So here's, here's the bottom line. We need to pay attention, Transit Church. Let's pay attention to this kind of stuff, because it's happening. The manifestation of the Spirit is bringing words of wisdom and words of knowledge. It's a thing that happens. It's real, and it's happening today. It happens in our church, and it happens without fanfare. We don't need to bring attention to it, but it does happen, and we don't need to be afraid of it. God wants us to know that he's here, that he sees you. He wants to communicate to you in whatever ways you will receive it. Verse 9, to another faith by the same spirit. All right, so this is a different spirit. This is a different faith than the faith that all Christians are given when they believe the gospel and, and, and get saved. Some have likened this to spiritual vision. It's, it's believing in something that you can't articulate, believing in something that you don't, I mean, I, there's no way that I can like, prove that this is, going to be, this is going to happen or be true. I just know it on the inside. 
It's a technical definition. It's the ability to perceive with spiritual eyes what God is doing or wants to do, or perhaps something that he will do. Sam Storm says, this is a kind of extraordinary confidence in God, and it manifests itself in one of four forms. The first is faith in God and not in self. You have faith that, like, I know God can do this, but uh, I, I know I can. It's this overwhelming sense that only God can do uh, some kind of thing. And that really is, when I think about it, that's how we got into this building. You guys have heard me say, I mean, I mean, I was trying to strong arm the every uh, landowner in Kingstown. I went, to, I went to every building that was open, every open avenue for us to get into a building in Kingstown, and, it, and the elders got tired of me bringing like, new opportunities that, that never came to fruition to them. And at some point, it's, it's if I just, all right, Lord, here you go. We're not going to be a church in Kingstown uh, in our own facility unless you do something that I can't do. And I, couldn't have artic- I wouldn't have articulated it like this, but it, it, this is what I did. I was like, Lord, so I, I know you're going to do it. I wish you'd do it quicker than, quicker than later. Really, please? All right, because we're tired of setting up, but I know you're going to do it. Right? And we're here. We've been here for four months. There's no way. I, I mean, I knew it when I walked. Like, took, I took one step into this building. I was like, the Lord has done this. He's done it. And he did it when I wasn't expecting him to do it. But he did it, and I knew he was going to do it. And here's why God does this. He does it so that when life is really hard, when life is hard, when you, when you are stuck, when you feel like you can't get out of whatever situation that you are in, he brings somebody along that has more faith than you, you do at the moment, and he takes their little bit of faith, and he ignites you so that you're like kind of sucking off them, and, and it gets you through. That's why he does that. So faith in God and not in self. It's also faith showing up in God's character. This is like God making us, his, I mean, reminding us that we're his kids. You know, you're a king's kid. You are. God has adopted you, brought you into his family. And the, the, the first one is uh, only God can do it. Here's what the second line says. Faith showing up in God's character is God wants to do it. Why does he want to do it? Because he extends his grace to you. He loves you. We sang about that earlier. It's also faith that says God has the power to do something very specific. Here's what Jesus says in the Gospels, that if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, that you can say to a mountain, be removed, and it's going to move. And that's some, that's some, I don't know how, I mean, a mustard seed is like minuscule. That's the kind of faith Jesus says we need to have. And I pray that we would have that kind of faith. Faith that knows that something's going to happen without visible proof of it. Specific kind of faith. God putting in our heart and we knowing that he's going to do it. Lastly, there's faith that God will or already has done something. This is an overwhelming sense that God has done it. You can't prove it. It's like the person praying for someone. They're praying for healing and they can't prove it, but they know it. It's, it's happened. I was, um, this is several years ago now, um, and I was praying for, like, like in our service, this is uh, a, an older lady and her young son came up. There were some things going on in his ears, and he needed surgery. His surgery was scheduled for the very next day, and I was on the prayer team. And, uh, I mean, they asked for 
prayer for healing, and I prayed for healing. It was probably the most simple prayer that I ever prayed. All right, Lord, so you don't heal because you have to. You heal because you get to. So we have faith to believe that you're going to heal. Heal, heal. You're going to heal. James 5, right? Come to the elders of the church, and they're going to anoint them with oil, and the prayer of faith will heal the sick. And for some reason, and I'm not like this every week, Transit Church, I have faith that that, guy, that little boy is going to be healed. And so I prayed a simple prayer, and I said, hey, well, let me know how it goes. The next day, they called the church office. The boy did not need surgery. Jeff didn't do anything but, but pray. I sort of knew him. I, like, I just knew God was going to do something. And it was cool to see that, that God um, made that happen. I can't explain it. He just did it. Verse 9, to another gifts of healing by one spirit. I'm talking about healing already. Here's the thing to notice in, in verse 9 when it talks about healing. Paul doesn't write singular, the gift of healing. He says, rather, gifts of healing. And here's what he means by that. It's, it manifests in different ways. There's not one way that God heals. Sometimes we like to say somebody can heal. There's not a, there's not a verse that we can turn to in Scripture that says, um, that, that uses the terms of, of healers in the church. We don't find those um, those terms in the Bible. There are Christians who, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can actually bring about healing when God, when God by the Spirit, empowers them to pray for someone. So that's technically how you would say that. Jeff has no power to heal anybody. What happens? Jesus heals, and he, he, uh, he uses us to do it, okay? Here's what Sam Storm says. Sam Storm says, healings are maybe occasional, but they are subject to the sovereign purposes of God. He says, healing is expressive of God's divine mercy. This comes from Philippians 2.27, which means that healing should never be viewed as a right. You know, sometimes we can, as Christians, we can demand that God heals, thinking that we can command God and he'll do whatever we say. There is, in a sense, that we should have confidence that God allows us to come to him and to ask for things, and even confidence that he's going to do what we ask, but to demand that God does anything would be uh, us making ourselves God and making him our servant. And the Bible doesn't condone that. And so healing is one of those things. Healing is not the payment of a debt. God doesn't owe us healings. We don't even deserve it. So when God is, is, is bringing healing, you know, empowering a person to pray for someone in some way and, and bringing healing, then it's just a manifestation of God so that he wants to be, in, in a way that he wants to be, he wants to be known. But here's the thing, Transit Church, we need to pray more for healing. So, like, like literally, at the end of every service, Nick comes up and gives a benediction. He says, hey, if you need or want prayer, come down to the front. And some of you uh, have things going on in your life, in your body, in your families, by which you should submit to the elders of our church to get prayed for, that we can come alongside you and beckon the God that loves us to heal. Verse 10, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. Let's start with uh, the idea of, 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 um, of miracles. The Greek word here is, is dunamis. It's where we get the word power. The literal sense of, of, of how this phrase goes is it's the taking of powers. And so it's the taking of the power of God and bringing it about in a work that people can see. You know, the idea of miracles is under attack. There are some that would tell you that 
Um, miracles don't exist today. Miracles happen in the early church, and that was God just building the church and, and, you know, and making it happen. But here's what Jesus says in John 14. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. So Jesus went away, sent the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit residing in us, and we should, I mean, think about it. Jesus isn't a liar. Why would he say these words and not mean them? Well, why would he say these words and mean them only for the first century? Jesus is a person that keeps his word, and he's faithful to it. So when Paul says miracles, here's what he's referring to. He's referring to stuff like raising the dead speaking a word of discipline to, to, to Ananias and Sapphira like Peter did, and in their chastisement, it killed them. It's natural miracles like turning water into wine. It's causing a storm to be still on the Sea of Galilee like, like Jesus did. It could be re- reproducing food with a little boy's lunch to feed thousands of people or causing the rain to stop like Elijah was able to see. It's also exorcism and seeing people set free from spiritual oppression. I got a story for that too, but I'm running out of time, so I can't tell you about that. It's, it's nobody can do this but God kind of stuff. And transit church, that stuff happens still today. And so we don't have to be afraid of it or think that it's weird. Wayne Grudem says this about miracles. He says, miracles are a less common kind of God's activity in which he arouses people's awe and wonder and bears witness to himself. That's what God wants us, I mean, that's what God is doing. That's what he wants of us, that we would be in awe of him. And it would cause us to glorify him, not just with our words, but the way that we live our lives. And that the things that he does, and that he sometimes does through us, would, would, would all lend to his glory and his fame and his name, and they would bear witness to himself. And I know, I mean, I've said some weird stuff already, and we got three more weeks of spiritual gifts to go. So y'all got to, like, buckle your seatbelt. But then I'm going to ask you to loosen them up at some point, right? Because God wants us not to be weird Christians, but to, to operate in simply what the Bible says. And here's a word to the skeptic and to those of you that might be saying, man, I picked the wrong day to come to transit church. This is just, like, weird, like weird, weird, right? Here's the thing. We all want miracles to happen. We do. Like in our heart, when life gets tough, when it's you on the other end of somebody, if a miracle doesn't happen, this person is going to die or they're going to be in a wheelchair or be relegated to a bed for their entire life. We, we want a miracle to happen when our kids are, are gone, have gone astray and, and, and we, by our words, our actions, can't bring them back. We want a miracle when... Life is tough on the job, and it's crushing us. There's all kinds of situations and circumstances by which we personally need miracles, and the people in our lives need and want miracles. And it doesn't matter if I believe in God or Jesus or not. There are things that happen in our world, in our lives, by which we are, at least on the inside, crying out for God to do a miracle. And I don't know about you, but... Isn't it cool to be around a group of people who actually believe that God does this stuff and that, that, are, that are willing to be conduits for God to empower them by the Spirit and see this stuff happening, stuff that you can't explain and, and you can't even make sense out of? I mean, who wants to hang around a bunch of skeptics who, who said God has left the planet and he's like, all right, here, fend for yourself. 
Nobody wants a God like that. Nobody wants to hang around people like that. We all need the power of God in our lives, and sometimes we need other people to believe for us when we fail to believe that the power of God is working in us. Amen? Amen. Paul says to another prophecy, I'm going to speak particularly on prophecy and tongues and interpretation tongues when we get to chapter 14. All right, so if you will allow me to save time today, I'm just going to table this uh, and then we're going to come back and talk about those two. Th- those are ones that trip us up, right? I mean, literally. So we're going to spend a whole sermon on those two gifts. But here's what Sam Storm says prophecy is. Prophecy is the human report of a divine revelation. Prophecy is speaking forth in, me- in merely human words of something God has spontaneously brought to mind. He continues in verse 10, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits. This is the ability to say something is of God or not. Paul in Acts 16 this is, the, this is the, him starting the Philippian church. He goes to Macedonia against his will. He gets there. He meets Lydia, and Lydia comes to faith, and he's walking through the town uh, of, of Philippi, and there's this demon-possessed girl who's behind him. She's, she's enslaved by, her, by owners, and she's going behind Paul saying, uh, this guy's a servant of the Most High God. This guy's a servant of the Most High God. This guy's a servant of the Most High God. And it's, it starts ignoring uh, ign- uh, annoying Paul to the point that he turns around and says, come out of her, right? He notices this, this demon-possessed girl, you know, has a demon. He was going to leave her alone, but she was annoying him. And so he cast out the demon. That's a, that's a perfect example of that. I mean, honestly, I know a, a buddy of mine who was in D.C. on a missions trip. This happened to him. Like, he noticed someone that was under demon possession, and he spoke to the woman. The demon came out. Um, she was noticeably in her right mind and then said these words, what are you doing? I don't want to be set free. I want, I want that spirit in me. Came back in. Crazy stuff. To another various kinds of tongues, to another, the interpretation of tongues. Again, we will speak more about that in a couple weeks. And then here, here's where he lands, verse 11. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And this is a a good point to end on. So here's what Paul is saying. It's up to God what gifts he wants to give us. We've got to be careful that we don't measure people according to the gifts that God has given, because it's up to God to give the gifts. God gives as he will. It's up to us to attain them. We're going to talk about that as well. But they're his gifts. So let me tell you my story, and i got to be quick because I'm out of time. All right, so my, my introduction to spiritual gifts, obviously you've, you've, you can tell I've operated in a little bit of them, and I've been around them for all my Christian life, but I came to faith through Navigators, and Navigators is just like playing Jane. There's not a whole bunch of spiritual activity going on in Navigators. It's just like reading your Bible and praying and witnessing and memorizing Scripture. But God discipled me through two guys, Stephen and John, who were Pentecostal denominationally and I couldn't have told you those words in my early years, but there was something about them that put a seed in me like, Lord, I want to be like them. I want to operate like whatever it is in them. I want to do that. Um, so I was on vacation. I was on leave from, you know, after graduating from West Point, um, and I just went to a church, and unbeknownst to me, this church was uh, a, a church that operated in the gifts, and the pastor there was preaching on worship. Um, it might have even been from Brimless Passage. I don't even remember. 
But I remember at the end of the service, and we were worshiping, and of course, I come from a singing family. I've always loved to worship. I've always loved to sing. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm used to being in, in a, you know, kind of a, a heightened, uh, I'm on the experiential side, all right? So that's, that are, y'all okay with that? Okay, and so at the end of service, I'm worshiping, and all of a sudden, the words that I'm trying to say out of my mouth, the English words, won't come out. And I'm speaking in syllables that I don't understand. What's going on? I was being gifted the gift of tongues. All right, we're going to talk about that in a couple weeks later. I would tell you that that moment, firstly, it was like, it was like Ghostbusters, right? Like, like something happened to me, and it, like Acts chapter, I should have said Acts chapter 2, that, but y'all understood Ghostbusters, right? It was like, not like something, it wasn't something that took over me, but it was definitely an, a spiritual empowerment where I felt like something was going on. I wasn't out of control, but I knew that at least I felt like I had more of the presence of God in that moment than I had two seconds before that. And it was the catalyst for the rest of my life of pursuing just being filled with God's spirit. Fast forward 10, 15 years, 2002, we are at Manor Church in Fayetteville. I'm assigned to USASOC, US Army Special Operations Command, and I'm commuting back and forth from Fable to the, the Pentagon, once a week at the Pentagon. So I signed up for a men's retreat. We're new to this church. We've been there two weeks. I don't know anybody. Uh, and so uh, the men's retreat was that Friday. I come home. I get there late. I know nobody. All right. And so I go through the whole day, sort of doing what we're doing in the men's retreat. And at night, a guy named Jim LaFoon is preaching. And I'm just sitting there worshiping, listen to the sermon. Afterwards, he stands up, he points to my pastor, uh, and he says, and he starts like calling people out, almost like Charles Spurgeon. And then he pointed at me. And he wanted me to come to the front so that he could prophesy over me. And the guy next to me, unbeknownst to me, was the youth pastor. His name was Sean Nix. And Sean kept elbowing me and said, hey, um, he wants you to come up there and I was like, I ain't going up there. Like, I, I don't want to be prophesied. I don't even know what that is. Yeah, and so I, I go up there, and this, this guy, Jim LaFoon, I mean, he didn't, he didn't wow me by his words. He didn't say anything to me that did not resonate with me. He didn't say to me anything that, that I didn't already know. But he said a lot of stuff, not about pastoring or like that, any kind of stuff like that, but he said stuff like leadership and I mean, very accurate stuff in regards to not where I had been, but where I was going. And I would tell you, Transit Church, I've lived every word that he said. And those words were catalysts to me standing on this stage right now because I was a major. I had just come from SAMS and CGSC. And I, I mean, I was on my way to general. At least I thought so in my mind, right? I was having fun in the Army, and I think I was doing well. And got used that moment to change my direction. And I'm not saying that God's going to do that for you or with you, but here's what spiritual gifts are for us. They're for the advancement of God's kingdom and the building up of this church. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful. Thank you that you're a God that gives gifts, that you give them generously to your church for the sake of Jesus' fame. And Lord, um, I know I've said some things maybe that have weirded some people out, and like, what do we do with that stuff? Uh, but here's what I know, that we desperately need you, and 
Uh, if we would give ourselves to the words of Scripture, God, you give yourself to us. And so I pray, God, that you open our hearts, our ears, all of us to all of you, that we might display more of you in the world. Lord, we don't live in a, in a region that's anti-God, but we do live in a region that, uh, that's so busy that we could bypass you. I don't know if there's ever been a spiritual awakening in D.C., but perhaps through us and by the gift of the Spirit, you would use us to advance your kingdom and, and, uh, and be for the good of your church through the, through the uh, exercising of spiritual gifts. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.